Good morning. For me today is uh, Happy C.S. Lewis Day. Now, you wouldn't know what that means except for the fact that I remember many years ago um, reading the book called Surprised by Joy. C.S. Lewis was always one of my favorite writers because he was uh, both a theologian uh, and a literature expert. Uh, in his own right. And um, he wrote the book Surprised by Joy uh, as sort of a, a unique type of uh, autobiographical presentation. Uh, it's not exactly the, the normal uh, writing style, but he goes through a, quite a bit of his emotional process throughout his life. And um, a man who began as a strong atheist, who became a theist, believing in God, moving from theism into becoming a very dedicated Christian, and then a very strong Christian writer who wrote books that were, for me, so challenging and so exciting to read. And if I confess to you, one of the books I used to really enjoy called The Screwtape Letters, uh, which was talking about demons and Satan and how he was viewing his role in this world and uh, how he liked to trick the Christians and confuse the Christians and that kind of thing. It was a very strange type of reading style that I would, had not been exposed to a great deal at that point in my life. But it was very exciting to see a creative approach to understanding the mentality of uh, the way that Satan might function in, in how he deals with people because it described trickery and approaches. So in, in not such a direct view of how Satan means evil, it was more Satan means really nice, comfortable, wonderful, make you feel comfortable experiences that get you distracted from important things. So I really enjoyed that kind of writing. So when I found the book, Surprised by Joy, and got to read about the author, it was so fascinating to watch how he had gone through that stage of deism and theism and then into Christianity and to following Christ that indeed he entitled the book, Surprised by Joy. And so today we have lit the, or, or lighted the, um, uh, uh, joy candle in the process of Advent as we move toward Christmas. And as we move in that direction, we've gone from hope to preparation, from preparation into joy, and next week we'll move to love, and then we'll have the Christ candle, which is the center candle uh, on Christmas. So today, as we consider our joy uh, in our life, we have to understand that our joy only exists not because of temporary happiness or temporary comforts of this world, but because we have something living in our hearts that carries us forward, gives us focus, gives us purpose and direction. That is the joy that is referred to. So as we look at Revelations 4... When we look at Revelation 4, 1 to 11, 
we've seen an, a, a description that somewhat follows up from chapter 1. You know, uh, two weeks ago, when we were looking at hope, we looked at Revelation chapter 1, reminding ourselves that the Jesus that is to come in the future, and we don't know when that future is, but when He comes again, when the advent truly occurs and we, it is fulfilled in Christ's return, the Jesus we will come in contact with will be the Messiah in every sense of the word. He will be coming with power, with strength. He will be coming with position and authority. People won't have to guess. According to the scriptures, it says that everyone will know when he comes. All around the world. So it's very different than the baby Jesus that normally we think of. And it's amazing how dangerous it is and how easy for it is for us to put Jesus in a box. And we, when I say I'm not talking about the manger box. I'm talking about putting Jesus in our own understanding. We limit His existence. So often when we think of Jesus, we only remember His history. When he came and how he grew up. And then he had years of ministry. Doing miracles. Reaching out. Sharing love. Challenging people. Giving teaching that people did like sometimes and didn't like sometimes. But that's the Jesus most of us know best. Because naturally we can read details about it. As we read through the scripture. But the Jesus that we will face when revelation occurs, is one that will be one of authority and position and love and care. But also, if you read the book of Revelation, you find that the first four chapters are sort of preparatory chapters. They're positive chapters. They're encouraging chapters because they are basically written to encourage the readers of this book. And indeed, as the scripture mentions in chapter 1, that there are basically seven churches. Now, the number seven is very troublesome and a little confusing at times because seven has a couple of meanings. One of those meanings being, being fulfillment has it to do with the completeness. And when we use the word seven there, it's saying that the seven churches somewhat represent churches all the way around the world. But it also, in this particular case, mentions seven specific churches in the area where it was written. And so it's, it's interesting also that most of these churches were all within about 50 kilometers of each other. But today I would like for us to take just a moment to look back at chapters 2 and 3 at the churches. You see, as we see in chapter 4, uh, where it describes what John saw in heaven, uh, it's based on the fact that Previously, already, these letters have been presented and are being sent to these churches. And it says in chapter 1 that these are the issues. Ephesians are, are in um, chapter 2, verse 1. The, you see the letter that was written to the Ephesian church. And as it says in here, there's certainly something we need to learn from this. Because 7 also refers to churches in completeness, and that includes us. So we're also to be looking in here and seeing where we are, who we are, if this may be us. And so Ephesians chapter, or in the book of uh, 
Revelation chapter 2, where it talks about the Ephesus church, it says that they had left their first love. The honeymoon was over. They needed to repent. Now, it's interesting to me that if you look at Revelation chapter 2, and you begin reading in verse 1, and you read verse 1 through 7, you start finding a lot of understanding about that church. Because the Lord knows who we are. And brothers and sisters, sometimes I kind of wish He didn't always know who we are. Um, At least I'll say it's related to me. I wish that there were things at times that I've done that I would wish that He didn't have to pay attention to. But in fact, He knows. And so the letter is written to say to the church at Ephesus, You've left your first love. But he says that after he's already said, I know your works. I know your attitude. I know how you functioned. I know your labor, your patience. I know that you dislike evil. And you don't allow it to remain in your midst. So you're not being passive. You're trying to be the church. But somewhere... A problem still exists. Somewhere there is a gap with life application. When we go back in our mind and we ask ourselves, what was my walk like when I first accepted Jesus? Was it different than today? Was there a level of excitement over accepting Christ? Hopefully there was. Hopefully, your decision to follow Jesus was more than an academic, factual experience. Hopefully, there was a sense of awareness from the very pit of your stomach saying, following Jesus is the most important decision I've ever made. Not just merely saying, well, I need to be baptized. Baptism is an obedience act. Accepting Christ is an act of giving of yourself, returning yourself to God, of confession of sins, of asking for His powerful hand to be placed on your life. The church was warned that somewhere down in the pit of their stomach, in the very being of who they were, they had activity going. They were doing right things. But somehow they had lost their first love. Verse 8 goes to the second church. Verse 8 says that the church at Smyrna suffered and had tribulation. And they had difficulties. And they had problems. And again, it re- reviewed with them. Uh, the letter said that, they, that the, the, their works were known. Tribulation, poverty, difficulties, everything. But basically in this one, unlike the first one, at the very end of the passage, it does not say, but. You know, one of the things when I was studying Chinese, I remember many years ago, one of the things that, that I kept finding was there were more words to say but than I ever imagined. You're cooking out Don High, but Guol. You know, just, just all kinds of running around trying to find. 
it's amazing that we can find distractions and excuses that sometimes keep us from evaluating who we are. The first one, in, when we look at the Ephesus church, there was that. But with Smyrna, there was not. At the end of the Smyrna, it was just simply saying, keep going, you're going the right direction. My prayer for VCBC would be we would be blessed with that kind of an evaluation. That the day when the Lord comes and He looks at us, He says, well done, my good and faithful servants. The third church we see, Pergamos. The Pergamos church. Again, hold fast my name. I know that you're the Satan's seat. I know there are, are cult groups in your city that are working. I know there's religious practice that is not healthy. I know you've even had people who have been martyred, been killed in the name of their faith. But yet, I see sexual problems. I see compromise with idols. And you have allowed people to have false teaching in your midst. They're too lenient, too tolerant. You know, usually we think of patience and leniency lovingness, caring, sensitivity, those kinds of things. We see those as very positive things. And indeed they are. But there are also times when the church is challenged to stand up. We live in a very fascinating world today. Some people get into long conversations about postmodernism and hypermodernism and various things related to standards that people have. If you have a standard today and you say this is right and this is wrong, you're probably considered closed-minded. You talk about uh, situations dealing with, um, uh, well, for example, I guess it was last week or week before I was reading something about in Canada where it was talking about the uh, uh, legalization of prostitution in this country. And, of course, it had natural, all these great rationales and logic behind it. You know, but if you have a standard as a church and you dare to say something is right or wrong, then you'll be viewed as closed-minded. The church, in this particular case, Pergamos, apparently, was uh, probably highly respected for not being closed-minded. They were very open they would allow pretty much whatever they wanted to allow within their midst. But the problem is, you may make yourself popular in society at that point. You may do, but once there's a point of compromise of our values and our morals and our goals, the church is no longer the salt and light that it is called to be. We've lost our ginger. You know, if, if you like to eat Chinese food, ginger will, it always has an impact on the meal. It makes a difference in the taste. The challenge that was given came after the but. You can repent. You can change. But as the Scripture says, it challenges them to repent, but it doesn't guarantee that will happen. In verse 18, we see the church at Thyatira. The Thyatira church had a similar problem. They had done some great works. 
Their charity was known for. Their service was known for. Their faithfulness was known for. Their patience was known for. So if you just look and you're trying to add up more of this, less of this, they sound pretty good. Sounds like they're doing well. But is there ever a time when our patience can get us in great trouble? When we allow sin to remain within our midst. See, this is where we read about the word Jezebel. And the reference to those with sexual habits that are not proper. And just simply saying, the church allowed that again. So again, there was a but. So it's another church that I don't want to hear VCBC is like. You know, I've often wondered, we often talk about church growth. And usually church growth is tied to numbers. How many people are coming into that church? How big is that church? How well is it growing? I think for myself, if I had to choose a church that had a smaller number, but we could truly say that is where God's presence is. Those are people of moral standing. Those are people who dare to run the risk of saying what is right and wrong. Who dare to challenge some of the thinking tied to postmodernism. I would rather be identified with that body than to be identified with one that is massive in growth if, it, if the growth is superficial. Now, growing and growing quickly is not necessarily a bad thing. But superficiality is never without cost. When we talk about our spiritual walk as Christians, it means we're willing to give time and effort to allowing God to speak to us. Then you have to ask yourself, how do I allow God into my life to speak to me? Probably quite a bit of it will be your relationship with the Word of God. Reading the Scripture is not always easy. It takes time. It takes effort. But we can see that the, that the bottom line is God is watching. And as the evaluation of these churches comes, it's because He knows what is going on in your life and in mine. Verse three, chapter 3, verse 1 talks about the church at Sardis. The church had all the activity in the world. It appeared alive, but it was dead. Now you've got to get into definitions of what's alive and what's dead. But the Scripture is simply saying to us, it's possible to play games with men, but it's not possible to play games with God. We can fool men by our activity. We can fool men by all the things that we do. We can trick men into believing we're alive and doing well and everything is wonderful. Maybe it's our music. Maybe it's our youth program. Maybe it's our senior citizens. Maybe whatever it is. Whatever kind of ministry we get involved in. Praise God for it if it's because it's being motivated from our spiritual internal identity with Jesus. But if it is just activity for activity's sake, we're dead. We must constantly be 
sensitive and evaluating of who we are. Because we don't want to be caught as VCBC, a dead body. Chapter 3, verse 7, the church at Philadelphia. Again, a church just like Smyrna. It was a church that had good things going on within it. It was reaching out. It was known for its love and its care and its outreach. And in the end, only good things were spoken of it. Only positive things were said about this church. And the challenge was, hang in there and I will continue to care for you. There's a reward for faithfulness. There's a reward for standing up and knowing your values. There's a reward for our biblical teaching and and study. Whether it's through life groups, whether it's through our fellowship groups, our home builders groups, somewhere we have to be getting regular food, spiritual food, so that we will be healthy and be dependent. Because it says, according to Scripture, if we will be remain faithful, He knows that. Chapter 3, verse 14, the last church at Laodicea. This is the one most of us have heard the most about or remember the easiest, I suppose. It's the one that was neither hot nor cold. And as a result, this was a very dangerous position to be in. Wealth was not their answer. They thought they were doing well. They thought they had succeeded as people. But according to the Scripture, they were poor, blind, and naked. You see what we... Value in normal thinking sometimes confuses us for the truth of what God is seeing. That means it's sort of like we're speaking two different languages. One language gives us the idea that everything is fine, but in fact we're missing the whole conversation. And God is presenting a language and an expectation of us that we do do very, uh, unfortunately, this particular church had major problems with. It says, I chasten those whom I love in verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19. Repent. Urgent self-understanding and humility were their need. They were neither hot nor cold. My concern as I look at this, look at the seven churches, is that that we somehow may forget that we are probably one of these churches, at least. Certainly we need to learn from these churches the dangers that exist, the confusion that can occur in our lives. So when we think about Jesus coming again, when we think of the Advent, is it an exciting time? Or is it a fearful time? For the church, for the true church, it should be an exciting time. But if you are either one of those churches that happens to be called a dead church, or one that needs to repent and you refuse to repent, it would not be a very exciting thing. Because if you also look throughout the book of Revelation, beginning at about chapter 5, chapter 5 through 18 is what most of you think about when you think of the book of Revelation. Because it is in those chapters that a lot of the description of judgment 
and punishment come. God is a fair God. He is a righteous God. He allows us to determine our own future. Question is, do we allow Him to be the one that guides our future? Chapters 1 to 4 prepare us. They were written with intent to say, Great news, church! Don't be afraid. The good news is the Redeemer, the true judge, the fair judge, the loving judge is coming to give you hope. The churches at the time that this was written were very depressed. They had been persecuted by the Romans. They'd been through a lot of struggle to be a Christian in those days. These scriptures are written saying to them, there is still hope. But even as I give you hope and I challenge you to repent, do recognize you cannot play games with God. The scripture that we looked at in chapter uh, 4 talks about the door that stands open. John was looking. He saw a door that was open. It said to come in. He was, he was being uh, made available the opportunity to understand what was going on. And chapter 4 basically is a worship chapter. When we talk about worship, we need to understand what was going on here. Jesus was in the throne. We need to picture in our minds, it's not intended as a literal description, but it is intended to help us understand the glory and magnificence of your Creator and mine. Now, I know that we don't, um, on a daily basis, find ourselves thinking quite this much about our spiritual lives, because we're so wrapped up in our work, we're wrapped up in our friends, we're wrapped up in our driving of the car, we're doing all kinds of other things. But in this chapter, chapter 4, it's trying to remind us there will be a day that we will have a new focus. Now, yeah, okay, that sounds pie in the sky. That's some theoretical thing. No, it's really not. In truth, where we are now is going to be the temporary. You know, we tend to talk about how many years we're going to live in this world, just like non-Christians view that. And so we find ourselves trying to stretch our lives out a little longer. You know, oh, I'm, I'm 82 now, but I really want to make it till I'm 92. I'm 22 now, I want to make it till I'm 104. Whatever your dream is. But we, we dream of this stretching it. In truth, when you look at eternity, when you look at eternity, 95 years is nothing. May not even make it on the page. It's so short. And yet we give every bit of effort we've got to this. Chapter 4 is trying to say, it's not going to keep going that way. It's going to change. Your values are going to change, and this is how. And in chapter 4, it describes using the most beautiful words that could be communicated. Now, how they communicate, it talks about different kinds of valuable stones, jaspers and rubies and, and the, 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 the crystal sea that is there. It talks about the lightnings and the crowns and the thunder. And it's, the emphasis is the majesty 
the majesty and the unbelievable experience that will be held when we stand with our, our and we in that particular place. And so it describes Jesus on the throne in the middle, middle, surrounded by 24 other thrones, smaller thrones. And there's in a, and as they go around that throne, just picture in your mind what it is like to truly worship. We're pathetic at worship, guys. You know, coming in here and sitting in little rows and listening to somebody stand and talk like me, which I, I, I by no means see myself as a great orator. We come and we listen and we have people sing for us, we have people pray for us. Our worship needs to be something we're experiencing within ourselves and as we focus ourselves on God. And how we focus ourselves on God. This is saying to us, there's going to be a new worship approach. And as it describes, it says, the center of it all is not you. Never was, never will be. The center of it is Jesus on a throne. And it says that these elders, the 24 elders are around him. Sitting on thrones. But what are they doing on the thrones? Are they sitting back saying, okay... I have arrived now. Now now I'm finally getting good respect. No. The Scripture says that their goal is to worship. And it shows some of the worship habits. And of course it uses holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy. O Lord and God, I receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things and by Your will they were created and have their being. Their focus is not like ours. Your focus and my focus, 90% of the time, is yourself. How is it going to impact me? If I go here, if I do this, if I go, if I study that, if I get whatever kind of a degree, how is it going to impact me? The focus is that when we look into eternity, it's all going to change. It means everything we did down here, kind of silly. Kind of silly. We worry about our materialistic values and the the positions we've got. And yet the Scripture is saying what we've got modeled in heaven is going to be totally different. Are we prepared? If I ask you how to worship today, we probably wouldn't understand how to do so and do it very well. We don't know how to bow before our Lord. When we talk about praise of Him, we talk about the idea of giving our crowns to Him, giving our gold to Him, giving everything, anything He wants, we give to Him. You know, I'm not even sure we think it would be a good thing to do. And yet the Scripture says in the modeling in chapter 4, their focus was totally that way, not this way. Praise, worthy, worthy. The Scripture talks about being worthy. He is worthy. I am not. 
Not self, not circumstances, not failures, not problems, not people, not power. Chapter 4 teaches us about worship. It describes it using the best words, best language it possibly can to say to us, the Jesus that is coming again, the Jesus who will be here to celebrate with us, is a fair, adjusted, justified God as He comes the next time. That Jesus that will step into our midst will be here to provide us hope, provide us joy. Today, as we look at the churches, we should be challenged by them. But we also need to recognize that the fulfillment comes in how we worship and in who we focus. Let us pray. Father God, we come to you today asking that we might focus less on ourselves and more on you. We ask that as we consider the 24 elders and we consider the Jesus in the middle and we consider the four beasts that have eyes in the front and the back that see and and truly are omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent and always and fully grasping and understand all that is. And yet with all that's going on, they have only one clear focus and that is praise to you. God, I would ask that we would have that attitude even at this time in our service to you. Father, you know who we are. You know our weaknesses. You know our strengths. You know that we very well could be one of the seven churches. Father, if indeed we are one who is one of the churches that are playing games with itself, we ask your forgiveness and we ask that you change us. Father God, if if we are one of the churches that that simply is is wrapped up in in, in pride, uh, and we allow things within our church and people within our church to say whatever they want to and allow cult-like teachings and training, and we don't respect the importance of theology and understanding who you are, we again ask your forgiveness. God, give us a joy in following you in all that we are. Father, there are so many distractions in the world in which we live. We, we see those. We understand them. We don't give them as an excuse to you. But we do indeed come to you asking that you would help us to change our thinking. Change our hearts. Help us to find the joy of what it is to follow you in all that we are. In Jesus' name.